Welcome back to Winning with Connections. This is Donna Honeycutt, and I'm excited to have Will Goodman on our podcast today. Will Goodman is an acquisition policy expert that I had the good fortune to work with when he was policy director at the National Defense Industrial Association. At the time, he struck me, and I continue to be dazzled by his ability to really understand business in the context of regulation in a way that few people coming out of government can. Welcome, Will. Thank you, Donna. It's great to be here. So I know you're here to talk about some specific things, but can you give us a little bit of background about where you started your career and kind of where you're at right now and trying to solve problems for small business? Absolutely. So I started my career in the federal government in 2004 when I was hired onto the staff of the Office of the Secretary of Defense. I worked for the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy on military plans, and I worked there from 2004 until, and actually in in my chair in the Pentagon until the end of 2009. And I I draw that distinction because uh, toward the end of that, that tour, I applied for and was selected for a congressional fellowship. So I spent one more year technically nominally in the office of the Secretary of Defense, but actually over on Capitol Hill. So that was a wonderful kind of entry into the world of defense capabilities. And then when I went to Capitol Hill, I went to work first as a fellow and then after my fellowship year as a permanent advisor uh, on his staff to Senator Leahy of Vermont, uh, Senator Leahy at the time was second in seniority on the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee. Today, he's the chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee and an incredibly wonderful boss, a true statesman, a, a legislator out of the old school that where, where people really know how to cut deals and get things done. They want to work in a bipartisan fashion. And his role on the Appropriations Committee was kind of ideally in line, actually, with my prior experiences in in two ways. I mentioned his role on the Appropriations Committee, and the Appropriations Committee is really about funding the policies established by the Armed Services Committees. So the Armed Services Committee will opine on, you know, what we should do here or there and what capabilities we should have or whatever. And the Appropriations Committee is largely about funding those initiatives to actually be able to get them done. And making sure that we've we've got enough funding in our force structure for operations and maintenance and all the rest of it. And of course, there's a lot, you know, I would say dollars are policy. So so I believe there's a lot of policy actually made by the Appropriations Committee. But when you're a business and you're a government contractor, that couldn't be more true. Yeah. And then he also was the was and is the co-chair of the Senate National Guard Caucus. And so I was very focused on those issues as well. I worked for Senator Leahy for four years total and then moved off the hill, as you said, to go work at the National Defense Industrial Association and the policy shop. And I ended up running the policy shop. And during that time, got to work a lot with you, which was a a great pleasure for me and frankly, a wonderful learning opportunity because I don't, you were very complimentary to me in the introduction, but I will simply say, I don't think I know somebody who has a better, keener grasp uh, from the business perspective of defense acquisition and government acquisition and contract policy than you. And I know a lot of people who will back me up on that. Uh, plenty of 
of known experts in the field, including John Etherton and many others. So I think we can all accept that on very good authority. But the wonderful thing about being at NDIA, not only was it one of the three key defense associations representing industry and industry's views on a variety of matters, but it's really the unique association in terms of small defense manufacturers and defense small businesses specifically. You know, there at the time I worked there, there were 1,700 corporate members. And if you think about that, just that number, right, and the number of larges and mid-tier companies there are in the defense marketplace, what that means is 1,500 or 1,400 of those members are small businesses because there aren't more than two or 300 large and large mid-tier companies supporting, you know, the defense marketplace and the government contracting marketplace generally. And so our focus and attention was almost always on small businesses because that was our unique, what we brought to the table. AIA did a great and does a great job representing the real large primes and even some of the larger mid-tiers. And PSC is very services focused. We saw ourselves as the voice of defense small business and defense manufacturing, and that was great. And subsequent to that, I will just say very briefly, I've worked in a few private sector roles and came here to Applied Research Associates ARA about eight months ago in September of 2020. And it's been a wonderful experience. And I'm very, very excited to get to talk to you and your audience today about ARA being a 100% employee-owned company, as they call it, a 100% ESOP. That acronym stands for Employee Stock Ownership Plan. I know you know that for your listeners. We're a 100% ESOP, and it's really a pretty profound commitment on the part of ARA to employee ownership. And it was a big part of what attracted me here. So, And we've got, as you mentioned, some things we're looking at where we can strengthen and bolster small businesses and also employee ownership in the defense marketplace. And I'd, I'd love to talk to you about that today. Absolutely. One of the things that we've been talking about, a dialogue we've been having for years is, you know, with appropriations committees making policy, with the acquisition regulations really driving the federal marketplace in a way that frequently officials don't understand. We build these small businesses. And, you know, one of the things I've seen at ARA that I really admire is the kind of esprit de corps that I think, I like to think we have at my own firm, WWC Global. We have a tremendous sense of ownership. We literally built this company, thank God for them, on the talents of military spouses and veterans. And there is this sense of continuation of mission within this small business. And Congress has, in my opinion, wisely set aside certain opportunities just for small businesses and to be able to capture a lot of what's new, what is agile and nimble and small. And, and we and the small businesses that we work with have been able, I think, to bring a lot of innovation and different ways of doing things into the Department of Defense. And appropriately, WWC Global is now coming up on exiting our small business program because we've done well. So that particular program worked wonderfully for us. There are a couple of ways that we can continue to keep some of those benefits as we enter the mid-tier space, which is a lot more competitive. So as you know, mid-tier companies, these are companies that are doing anywhere from $15 million worth of business to a couple of billion. And the minute you, you sort of leave that 
kind of cultivated space of the small business, you're now competing against companies that have ubiquity in all the Pentagon offices and they know everything and everything that's going on. And so that capture process becomes a lot more challenging. And so we've talked about what do small businesses do when they're facing what unfortunately for a lot of small businesses is a valley of death. They get just successful enough to cross over that threshold where they're no longer a small business and now they find themselves competing with the Lockheeds and the Boozes and the Khakis. And it's a very different game. And oftentimes the intent of the small business program, which is to cultivate that next generation of competitors to sort of the big oligopoly of, of large successful firms, wasn't sufficient to set them up to be independent and, and compete in that space. Maybe not necessarily because their product isn't as good or better, but because again, of that sense of ubiquity and the contacts within the building. So I know that you've had some kind of innovative ideas about how to avoid the valley of death. Tell me about what you're working on right now. Sure. Well, and that goes to your second question that you asked me, which is really what are we what are we trying to do in terms of create an ecosystem of innovation that is going to support small business growth, but also make sure that we are serving the best and highest ends of our American marketplace and getting uh, DOD and other government agencies the kind of innovative technology and capability that they really depend on for, for their missions. So what we at ARA have developed alongside an industry organization, which we're a member of, which is called the Employee-Owned Contractor Roundtable, or ECR. And that is a group of government contractors that are 100% ESOPs. So that's that acronym I used earlier, which functionally means a 100% employee-owned company. And so we're a small group of 100% employee-owned companies that service this space specifically, the government contracting and defense marketplace. And it's a shame to us that actually the defense and government contracting marketplace has an underrepresentation of 100% ESOPs. Now, that is somewhat anecdotal information because there isn't a data, there aren't data collected today to be able to determine the exact number. But simply looking at the, the very limited size of this contractor group and the small number of companies who are involved in it, and then the vast size of the government marketplace, it, it just appears that uh, there's this, there's this underrepresentation of employee ownership, which is too bad for a couple of reasons. Reason number one is every academic study that I have reviewed, and there are many, including by Jared Bernstein, who's on the been brought into the Biden administration on economic matters. Just uniformly, these studies demonstrate that on a statistical basis, 100% ESOPs simply deliver better outcomes for their employees, and it's it's fairly unambiguous and the sliding scale of ownership, the more a company is employee-owned, the higher percentage of that company that is employee-owned, the, the better and better and better it performs. And I would liken it, Donna, to what you just said about WWC. And I completely agree with you. Having seen you all in action, you have this incredible esprit de corps and a sense of ownership within the company. And that is something that's actually a characteristic uh, not of all small businesses, but of many, right? Because if you're, if you're employee number six or seven in a company, oftentimes as an incentive, 
equity will be offered to you in some degree. Even if you are not an equity owner in a company, the company is so small that it's a part of you. You know, it's if you're if you're like the 10th or 15th employee in a company, even if you never own a piece of that company, you were so present at the foundation of things that as it grows, you can't help but feel like this is a part of you. This is you own a part of that. It's your baby. Let's let's be clear. It's our baby. And then I can tell you that from our experience, people that we hired for, you know, when when all we had was $20 an hour jobs as sort of a junior Mm -hmm. analyst are now serving as C-suite officers. And there's no replicating that, right? There's this sense of history and institutional memory and shared mission that you're not going to find at a larger firm. And, you know, one thing that I see as well is if we're talking about innovation, you know, where's the most innovation coming out of these days, Silicon Valley? How are they incentivizing people to care about their firms and the products that the firms put out? Obviously, that's by employee ownership and, and stock options and such. So I think they're sort of, and again, you're the expert, but to me as a layperson, that looks like the proof of concept right there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely true. And I would say, just to add to what you said about about that sense of ownership, the only way that where you can scale an enterprise out of a small business and preserve that sense of ownership, even WWC, as amazing as your culture is, if you grew tomorrow to be, or not tomorrow, maybe in 20 years to be the size of a Lockheed Martin, there just will be a dilution of that sense of ownership, right? Perhaps some people will still have that same kind of esprit de corps, but you get into an enterprise that size and it's a major public company it's a Fortune 500 public company, blue chip, and there's a dilution of that culture. What I've observed in ARA, which is a much larger company than, than WWC, is we haven't had a dilution of the sense of ownership as I walk around. And I, I've been in other enterprises, and this is not a criticism of any other place where I've worked, but I will simply say ARA from top to bottom has the keenest sense of individual employee ownership of what, and I I use that in every sense, right? Like I own this company, I'm a stockholder, but also I'm responsible. I'm responsible to my other employee owners. I'm responsible to my program. I'm responsible to my customer. And that is such a wonderful culture inculcated throughout. And I have to say, you know, I can't prove it, but anecdotally, I have to point to our status as a 100% employee-owned firm as at least a dimension of why people have that very strong sense of of ownership culture. And to your point about innovation, there have also been studies demonstrating that R&D output and innovative output grow along with the percentage of employee ownership in a firm. So it's it's really good outcomes across the board. And you mentioned early on that we have a, a specific legislative proposal. I'd, I'd love to share some of the details of that with you here, if, if, if I may. Please. Yes. So you've got a company about to enter the valley of death. It's about to lose its small business size standard. And you've got a company that actually could, if it chose to do so, become a 100% ESOP. And so what we are trying to do with this legislative proposal, which I'll describe now, is create an incentive valuable enough for companies to be able to say that incentive would really help me 
navigate through the valley of death. And I'm confident enough in that, that I will go through the challenge and expense and administrative, you know, all of the details of making my company into 100% ESOP, or also perhaps selling my company to 100% ESOP, which for a small business would expand the number of companies to which to which you could sell and and get a fair valuation. So what the legislative proposal does is for follow-on contracts to a competitively awarded contract where the contractor's performance has been satisfactory or better in whatever the rating system is for the relevant agency, the program manager and contracting officer may opt to make a sole source award for a follow-on contract for substantially similar goods or services. So uh, fundamentally, what you're talking about is, you know, you're holding your contract holder today. If you're a small business, right, the scary thing about the valley of death is all of your business evaporating over time through recompetes where you're, you know, hopefully, hopefully for, for the sake of that company, that uh, recompete won't itself be a small business set aside, which you couldn't even compete for in the first place. But let's assume it, it isn't a small business set aside, that it's just a full and open competition in that environment. OK, you may not be competing with other small businesses, but now you're competing with Lockheed and Boeing and Lidos and whoever else. And the great thing about those companies is is their ubiquity. They're, they have penetration in the in the customer marketplace everywhere. Yeah. And when there is an opportunity of any scale, any consequential scale, they know about it. They know about it when you when you know about it because they're there working that office already on ten other programs. And so suddenly, you know what you may have been well positioned to win as a small, you're now no longer well positioned to win as a as a small mid tier. Exactly. So what this proposal would do by authorizing this sole source opportunity. Sole source opportunities are are frankly a streamlined opportunity for the program manager and contracting officer to obtain goods and services from a contractor, in this case, that they know will perform well and will meet the mission needs and requirements. That's really what PMs and COs are there to do. So it's a pretty appealing authority for them. It's not a mandate. It's not a requirement. It's merely an authority, but it's appealing enough. We're fairly confident that it would be used. And of course, for a small business that is exiting its size standard, it allows that small business to say, okay, I know I'm going to have to compete with the big boys and girls on every newly awarded contract going forward. However, I can rely on my existing book of business to secure my future as a company while I'm out there competing in, in you know, out in the wild in full and open competitions. And it reduces the risk to corporate survival. I mean, the, the reason, the, the rational reason why a small business owner might decline to grow outside their size standard is they may say, hey, I think I probably can succeed out there in the world, but I don't know it. So why would I, why on earth would I risk, you know, all these people's jobs, my corporate success and all of this on an outcome that isn't a guarantee when I know I can succeed at this scale. So this incentive is meant to give them that base of revenue that is going to keep them 
alive and successful where they are and allow them to compete out for full and open new full and open competitions without the worry or concern that their business is going to collapse because they've lost all of their existing work. I want to give a little bit of context to yeah, our listeners who are maybe really at the very small stage of small business. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this valley of death. What happens when you come to where you are growing out of your size status? For most firms, they do one of a number of things. Either they eke over that size status almost because, well, they got this contract and they got that contract. And then they find that, that without the status, they can't compete as effectively again against the bigs that we were talking about. And so they deliberately shrink back down to small business status because that's where they're comfortable, which is great for them, create some great lifestyle firms, deprives the government of, of the goodness that is in that firm and, and how it can be amplified. So that's one way forward. Another way forward, and you'll find this with in particular firms that are particularly innovative and have a great reputation, they'll be bought up. They'll be snapped yeah. up. And, and I've literally heard large firms say, look, you have no choice but to sell to us because you're about to grow out of your small business status. Now, Lauren and I being who we are, we say, well, watch us. <laughs> but, um, but, but there is this sense of, you know, you grow it, you sell it, you're done, which, which really kind of undermines the mission of creating that next generation of comp- innovative competitors on behalf of the Department of Defense. So fortunately for us, that complete growth out is is a couple of years away because we're still in status on some of our vehicles and we have a bit of runway. By the way, the Runway Act was also really helpful for that, I should add. That gave us an extra year. but uh, And in that year, we grew tremendously. But if I could harness the legislation that you are about to introduce, I would have done it last year. I mean, it, it was something that I, I always wanted. There were a couple of visions we had for the firm. One of the visions was to be able to employ our military spouses at any Oconus location at which they were stationed and allow them not only to keep working, but also to grow their careers. The other thing that has always been really, really attractive is, is to leave a legacy, you know, to include the people that built us and not cap their ability to grow. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm really excited about the legislation that you've proposed. And just to just to go back on what you just said, when you when you say you would have leveraged it, you mean that you would have you would have converted WWC into a 100 percent ESOP if this if this was available in a heartbeat. I'd keep. Yeah, I'd keep doing this for the rest of my life. I, I, <laughs> I love what I do. I trust the people that work for me. I know that, you know, as a former mergers and acquisitions attorney, I can tell you there's a very big difference in stock ownership between those owners that are short-term looking and looking to the next quarterly results and those that are long-term owning. And I think this is one of the, the, the sort of superpowers of small firms is when you're working with small firm, they care about the long-term reputation of the firm. They care about the long-term health of the firm. And therefore, small businesses generally are, in my opinion, very invested in the long-term outcomes of the client, not just in the quick upsell, not just in the quick, oh, we're going to get to bill it, and then we're going to collect money for it. They're really looking for that long-term growth and the long-term symbiotic relationship with the government customer, which is great. So when you are talking about just regular stockholdership, that's a little bit different. That's all about the quick sale. That's all about the churn. So, you know, the the investment of employees particularly, and we have employees that could go and get higher paying jobs. I'll tell you right now. 
but they believe in this firm, they believe in this mission, they are so wedded to our mission of supporting good government, that that's part of the reason they stay. And, and I think that what you are about to propose is a way to actually amplify and magnify that and bring that goodness to the Department of Defense and the U.S. government in a way that really does generate the next khakis and the next Boeings and the next boozes. Exactly. And, and so we wanted to tackle two policy problems, two public policy problems at once. One is the public policy problem that you spoke about earlier, which is how do small businesses cross that valley of death successfully? The second public policy problem is the one I mentioned a little while ago, which is this underrepresentation of employee ownership in the defense and government contracting marketplace with so many good positive outcomes coming, stemming really from employee ownership. It makes sense just as a general public policy matter to try to incentivize more firms to be employee owned. So in looking at those two challenges together, there's actually a lovely synchronicity because for financial reasons, and, and you might actually be, and I'm not might, I'm actually confident you're in a better position than I am to explain exactly why the phenomenon I will describe is the case. So I hope that you'll jump in here in a minute and, and give the listeners a little bit more detail here. But large small businesses are actually in a perfect position to convert to 100% employee ownership. And as I understand it, and, I, and maybe you will be able to elaborate here, when you are a very small, small business, you're simply not capitalized to be able to afford all of the ancillary activities that go like independent valuation, maintaining ownership and a trust, and yep. all of the things that go along with being a 100% ESOP. On the flip side, if you're Lockheed Martin, even if you wanted to become a 100% ESOP tomorrow, again, you're too well capitalized to be able to do that. There wouldn't be any financing options ever available where your body of employees could buy out your public of valuation and be able to restore that to 100% employee ownership. Can you talk, would you mind, I'm not not owning a small business. It's hard for me to know yeah. exactly why that is. Well, so I, I think that for manufacturers, that's an even bigger issue than it is for service providers, right? I mean, if you are engaged in manufacturing hardware, aviation, airframes, any of these kind of the R&D that ARA does, that does require a certain amount of capital. And it's, it's you know, what you do with the ESOP is you, it's sort of like the leverage buyouts of the 1980s, but with better outcomes because you have a lender that will give you that big chunk of money so that you can buy that manufacturing plant or you can buy that research and development facility. And then that money gets paid over time through the delivery of ESOP stock to employees in their retirement plans. Mm -hmm. But, you know, who cares what's happening to us, the contractors, right? I mean, this is business and, and DOD needs to worry about how to leverage and harness business as best as possible for its own mission. And this is the part where it matters. When you have ESOP owners, when you have employee owners, they're going to act a lot more like those owners of small businesses in terms of aligning themselves with the long-term welfare of the customer than those short-term ones, right? Than, than the diffuse ownership of, of the public companies that put out quarterlies. When you've got employee ownership, 
they're going to do the right thing. They're not going to give you a short-term expensive solution that widens the profit margin, but then is going to blow up five years later because their own destiny is entwined with the customers. That's exactly right. And I can tell you on a day-by-day basis as an owner of a small business, and, and this is the other thing to remember, so many of us started our businesses. I started to have a job. You know, Lauren and yeah. I started, so we would we would have decent paying professional jobs. Yeah. We, you know, we're not private equity. We're not in there to make a quick buck and get out. So every day we are reinvesting dollars back in the company for this growth for all sorts of compliance programs that are wildly expensive right now looking at reinvesting for cmmc purposes to get a cmmc cybersecurity audit we've got the cspr the the purchasing system that becomes increasingly required as you enter into the size that requires cas accounting we're investing in cas accounting we're investing in all sorts of business analytics that will allow us to keep having the same intuitive sense of how the business is doing at at each different place and and doing compliant pricing and all of that this is wildly expensive i mean I don't know that most people understand. I mean, to to implement CMMC, I think at the end of the day is going to cost us many hundreds of thousands of dollars, not including the upkeep. And so as a small business, you're asking yourself, well, should I invest this money and try to grow or should I just forget it? roll the dice and then sell as soon as I as soon as I grow out of status. And frankly, a lot of people, they they just kind of get tired and they say, you know what, I'll, I'll just roll the dice because I could take this dollar and take it home. Or I can reinvest it in compliance for when I'm a larger firm. And and good fiscal policy encourages companies to reinvest in growth. But I do know that, you know, set-asides and particularly sole source set-asides are a very, very delicate topic. I know that, you know, you've got your starting small businesses that don't want to be competing against businesses like mine for sole source set-asides. So what would you say to them? So, so the, the underlying legislative proposal that we've put forward doesn't in any way impinge on any small business set aside. So in the, in the set of circumstances where a company is a small business and a contracting officer and a program manager decide to preserve their existing contract for small business work as presently conceived, they would not be able to use this sole source follow on authority. We have proposed that they may want to entertain that, right? Because there may be circumstances where the the program manager and the contracting officer would like to preserve it as a small business and also use the sole source authority. What I would say to folks who are concerned about that or nervous about that is that the company that holds the contract already holds the contract. So fundamentally, no other small business is losing out on that business because it's already held by a company and they're not in a position to work that book of business today in any event. This would have no implications whatsoever on de novo small business set-aside competitions. It would not authorize or make it possible for 100% ESOPs uh, to compete for those unless they are a small business in that size category. And I should note, actually, I believe a majority of the members of the employee-owned contractor roundtable are actually 100% ESOP small businesses. Mm-hmm. And so and so it's, you know, those companies obviously can compete for any small business set aside for which they're eligible, but this proposal would not no no small company would need to worry, oh gosh, now I'm going to have some gigantic ESOP eating my lunch 
no gigantic ESOP is going to be eligible to compete to compete for a small business set aside program. So in the one avenue, and we're going to see how this shakes out with Congress this year. In the one avenue, it, it you know Congress may opt to allow small business credit for some of those follow on contracts. Again, that would only be for for contracts already held by that company. But they may decline to do that, in which case there would be no small business implications whatsoever. In that circumstance, it's really just about helping the company. And they probably would not preserve their entire book of business because, as as I mentioned, some of that business is probably going to that was a small business set aside is likely to remain a small business set aside. But it would at least secure some of it for the future and allow them to have some comfort around a baseline revenue. Uh, with which to go out and and do full and open competitions. So it's half a loaf. Maybe yeah. we could grow to a full loaf later. But but the bottom line is uh, what we're trying to do is create that incentive so that there's one more really good reason, Donna. As you said earlier, you said if this had been in existence, you know, we would convert to 100% ESOP because of what it makes it possible for your company to do. That's exactly what we want to expose. The small, the larger small businesses too is this incentive that's going to make them, even if unlike you, they've never considered 100% employee ownership for them to think, well, gosh, I'd love to be able to preserve my current and ongoing work. You know, let's explore this. And if in exploring it, they decide that they want to, you know, proceed with conversion to employee ownership. That's great. And that's the whole purpose and intent of the proposal. Absolutely. And it's sort of, you kind of keep that cash stream coming in to keep funding the new tools that you're going to need to compete more broadly. So, you know, you're not going to be getting multi-million dollar, tens or hundreds of million dollar awards without certain systems. And again, every dollar, it's a decision whether you're reinvesting or walking home with it. So if you can count on a certain income stream, and, and I will tell you, I'll share, we were very fortunate. We won a large contract award, $200 million. And this one allowed us to invest in all that infrastructure that we need to be a real contender in the cybersecurity infrastructure, in the accounting system infrastructure, and in the processes and all that. We now have ISO 9000, ISO 14,000, ISO 27,000, CMMI. Again, each one of these efforts is a lot of labor hours and, and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so if you want to be setting up small businesses to continue to compete and continue to be players as opposed to just getting gobbled up by by large firms that are like, okay, well, this this is a competitor. Let's just go own them, which is yeah. makes perfect business sense. I have to tell you, I very much sympathize with the large firms. You know, large firms, their mandate is increase shareholder value. That's how you do it through ubiquity through buying your competition, through buying innovation, that's that's all absolutely appropriate. But regulators and policymakers need to recognize that when they're saying, oh, you know, we want more diversity in the market. We want more opportunities for underrepresented groups. We want more innovation. This structure is that exists right now is somewhat inhibiting it. I agree. Well, we're hopeful that this proposal will get at some of those issues. And so we're we're feeling positively right now about how folks up on Capitol Hill have regarded it. There's a, a long way to go before it will be, you know, uh, included in any major piece of legislation and, and enacted. And it, who knows, it may never get there. I hope that it does, but we're certainly going to be working on that. And we've gotten a positive reception so far. 
Wonderful. I, as, as you know, have always been a huge fan of some kind of transitional support for firms growing out of small business. I really with with, you know, what the incentive should be is the Department of Defense's ability to capture innovation and capture that competitive. So please let me know if I can support in any way. Thank you. Sure. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk to you today. This has been lovely and a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Thanks again. Well,